Today I'm joined by Jane Ozan, a gay evangelical Christian who has been heavily involved in campaigning for equal rights for the LGBTQ community. Jane has been a key advocate in campaigning for a ban on conversion therapy, as a Christian leader and survivor herself of conversion therapy. In March, Jane resigned her position on the government's LGBTQ advisory panel over the lack of movement to a full ban on these practices. I want to add a trigger warning here, as conversion therapy is a difficult topic and there are references of rape and abuse within this discussion. I'm delighted that you have agreed to speak with me today about conversion therapy and I love the tagline on your personal website, unashamedly gay, unashamedly Christian and also the photo of you handing over copies of the 2018 Faith and Sexuality Survey together with your memoir to the Pope. I should be asking you about your papal meeting later but firstly to the practice of conversion therapy. Could you define what these practices are and what they look like? Sure, thanks Anya. Conversion therapy is an umbrella term and I'd probably say up front it's it's a really badly named term. It should really be called conversion abuse or conversion mm-hmm. practice. It's definitely not therapy. But it's an umbrella term for any practice that seeks to change, to cancel, to cure or suppress someone's sexuality or gender identity. And I tend to talk about it particularly in a religious setting because it can happen in in all forms of settings from um, therapeutic settings to what we call aversion techniques to religious settings, which is primarily where it happens, certainly in the UK today. Um, I talk about it in three phases and the first phase uh, is what we call the silent phase where an individual holds this terrible secret, terrible in their mind, that they they know themselves to be gay or bisexual or intersex or queer or however they want to define it but not um, conforming to the norm that their religion Mm. and belief system says they ought to certainly or, or indeed that they are trans and they try and plea bargain with God they try and you know um, beg through prayer and through various practices to change and, and often that obviously doesn't work and it takes them to a point of either where they have a breakdown or indeed somebody might out them and you move into phase two where you start to reach out typically for prayer Uh, on the belief that you can be healed but this is not how you're meant to be so God will intervene and change you and um, there was a lot of different beliefs with particularly within the Christian church that perhaps there is some emotional uh, trauma or a relationship with one of your parents or close siblings or a sexual abuse that you've been through that needs praying into and healing and you you will go through hours of being very vulnerable very open with people um, uh, often the prayer can be quite um, um, invasive basically but it leaves you constantly feeling a failure feeling wrong feeling sinful and actually when it doesn't work feeling uh, guilty for not having enough faith or indeed not being open enough And ultimately, you move into phase three, where you will look for more extreme forms, which normally are deliverance uh, ministries or exorcisms, people Mm -hmm. believing that there is a devil in you or a spirit in you that needs to be cast out. But there are even more extreme forms, sadly, and we're hearing more and more now of people who've been through what they call corrective rape. I should perhaps give trigger warnings around all of this, but where people 
have um, often been forced to have sex with someone of the opposite um, sex, often a family member, sadly, um, to try and, quote, make them straight, or they've been violently beaten up, or they've had food withheld, or any form of, uh, frankly, physical abuse, which you can imagine leaves uh, horrendous um, scars on an individual. And we know that all these forms of abuse cause deep, traumatic mental health issues, which take a lifetime often to uh, to heal. But sadly, perhaps more importantly, often take people to a point where they feel the only way out is to consider taking their lives. So it's a very serious set of mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, practices. Uh, some people think there's, there might be more benign forms like a uh, prayer or talking therapy is just that, but it's not because it's playing with your psyche and basically creating an internal war with yourself that um, causes great, deep, lasting damage. Yeah, I mean, the mental health problems that will come out of that would be truly harrowing. Um, yeah, it's such a, it's a really intricate and sad topic. Um, but I know that in recent weeks and months, you've been kind of the go-to person to speak about conversion therapy. As a Christian leader and survivor yourself of conversion therapy, you were a member of the government's LGBTQ plus advisory panel, but you resigned your position in March over the lack of movement to a full ban on these practices. You're quoted as being more than a little exasperated by, and I'm reading here, Groundhog Day consultations and a frustration that the government is listening to everyone from the religious right rather than survivors. So in your own view, the consultation is just another exercise of kicking the can down the road. That's right. The government have um, done two things recently, which one which obviously we're really welcome, which is uh, to announce in the Queen's speech that they will bring forward legislation to ban conversion therapy. So much of the battle over the last three years has been to get them from saying they want to end it, which did not necessarily mean they were going to ban it. They just wanted to do I don't know how they thought they were going to end it without a ban, but they didn't want to look at legislation. And following my resignation and various other interventions, we have now got a commitment in the Queen's speech that there will be legislation. Quite whether whether that legislation will actually cover the forms that it needs to, to ensure that we are actually banning the right things as yet to be seen. But the other thing they announced on the day of the Queen's speech that they wanted to have yet more consultation. They wanted to have a public consultation. We haven't heard the details of it much, but Liz Truss has said it will be announced in September. My understanding is that they will invite key stakeholders to take part in this consultation. Um, in fact, we received a letter from her just this week where those who form part of the Bank Conversion Therapy Coalition that I chair, we'd written to her saying how concerned we were about this consultation announced. And she's come back saying, well, you know, we want to listen to all organisations and um, different views, which hmm, to me says they wanted to be listening to the perpetrators and those who want to continue and giving them as much weight as as survivors. I mean, we finally got after, you know, months, if not years on my part of pushing for one meeting, which was actually nearly cancelled with Minister Badinot with with survivors. But that meeting, uh, which I was not invited to because I'd, uh, well, I'd resigned and I'd said some pretty strong stuff about 
about them. Um, but I set the meeting up for them. But uh, that meeting was yeah, didn't go terribly well. Um, and for me, it is it's very telling that the government is not choosing to put survivors at the forefront of what they're trying to do you know when you're dealing with abuse situations domestic abuse child sexual abuse any form of abuse normally the the rule you know the, the common sense rule is to listen to the experiences of those who've been through this and then ensure that the legislation you're putting together meets those you know their their concerns that's what happened in australia mm. that's what the international community have called for it's what's happening in Ireland and, and other places in Europe. And it's what needs to happen here. But it's not what we've seen yet. No. So, um, yeah, more delay. I just hope that it's not kicking a can further down the road. Liz Truss has committed that we will see some legislation next year. So we have to believe that. And therefore, we need to use this consultation as constructively as we can to ensure that they truly hear um the horror that people have been through and why religious practices in particular need to be included and why other issues around trans affirming care also need to be included. Absolutely and this delay to the ban it seems to be due partly due to hardline Christian groups questioning it. I understand that the Evangelical Alliance, a coalition that represents I think 3,500 churches met and wrote to government ministers asking for legitimate forms of pastoral support such as prayers and counselling to be allowed for anyone contemplating their sexuality or gender identity. Can this, in your view, ever be construed as a legitimate exclusion to a ban? What if there is no imposition of beliefs because the converter and the client are agreed? Well, it's all around definitions, ultimately. Um, you know, I, as a Christian, believe prayer is good and proper when it is a safe and open space where someone can come to a point of peace and acceptance about who they are. So spiritual guidance and prayer uh, around the issue of sexuality and gender identity, which allows someone to, to, to come to a point of peace, as I say, acceptance, is good. However, when it is with a predetermined outcome that who you are has to be straight or has to be cisgendered, i.e. not transgendered, or, or has to conform to a set of norms which is contrary to who you know yourself to be, then we know that that is deeply damaging and must be stopped and banned. And there's a lot of misunderstanding and frankly dare I say fake news and I, I don't know a lot of weasel words coming from certain quarters around freedom of religion and belief and practice. I, I held a, a parliamentary briefing uh, recently with the UN Rapporteur for Freedom of Religion or Belief so the world expert if you like in freedom of religion or belief is uh, obviously the lawyer who inter interprets international law and is the, the guru in human rights law in this area. And he himself was extremely clear that if a religious practice is harmful, then governments have a duty, indeed, you know, are obliged to legislate in order to protect the human rights of, of various groups who have been discriminated against. So freedom of religion and belief you can have any belief that you like, you can hold that internally, but when you practice it, mm. when you do things, when you worship, when you pray, when you speak, when you, 
if that practice is harmful, then we need to protect people. And so that's why we have legislation against female genital mutilation or forced marriage or other forms of abuse. And this is just yet another form of abuse. So I think the Evangelical Alliance, uh, we know have been um, vocal on this. Um, they need to look at carefully at what the Prime Minister has responded to them saying. There's been a lot of spin, if you like, in letters that have been made public. But what the Prime Minister has actually said is that he wants to ensure that there is room for appropriate su uh, pastoral support, which I'd fully endorse. Appropriate pastoral support is similar to appropriate talking therapy, which is about creating safe spaces. Inappropriate is when you're causing harm and must be stopped. It's an important distinction, definitely. And in your view, what practical steps do you think can be done now to influence policy and ensure that we get a full and proper ban? Of these practices? Well I think it's important that the government hear uh, primarily from victims as I've already said and understand what they've gone through and why, what the pathway if you like that led them to make those decisions. Someone like myself willingly consented to go through this. I thought I was doing the right thing, I wasn't coerced uh, arguably, I wasn't pushed into it or forced. But actually, the cost of me not going through this would have been complete rejection and alienation from my community, friends, family, and indeed what happened when I came out. And so legislation needs to cover all people, all all ages, and, and, and therefore we need to understand why, what, a, what evidence is there to show why grown adults, uh, Oxbridge-educated, if you like, edu adults like myself have chosen to go through this. Did we really truly have a choice? The second thing we need to do is hear from faith leaders um, who themselves believe there should be a ban. And that is something, I mean, the Bishop of Manchester uh, uh, this week has, has, has spoken out uh, in a blog site for me when we, The Guardian covered this. Um, there are other bishops who are keen to speak out. There are other faith leaders and faith groups that are speaking out uh, on this. And so, if you like, that the evangelical voice, which has been the primary voice saying they want to continue, is put in the context of actually you are a minority voice in amongst the mainstream religions that actually know how damaging this is. The Church of England, uh, in a debate that I led in 2017, gave a very clear signal that it called on the government for a ban, as well as outlawing it within the, you know, within the Church of England itself. So we need to hear from those. And finally, we, I think also we need to hear from the legal experts whose job it is to inter interpret human rights law and who can uh, also look at um, what has happened in other countries to date and see how that works, look at other uh, legislation in this country like harassment legislation or, or, or um, uh, legislation that's sought to deal with domestic abuse and see what we can learn from that and how we uh, can build that into good and meaningful legislation that will ban conversion therapy. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you speak about kind of different sections of people with, who are of faith. Are you contacted by people who aren't Christians but are of other faiths who have suffered um, in similar ways with regards to conversion therapy? Absolutely. I mean, we know that this is a problem across all faiths. And indeed, I, I have an interfaith advisory board who are speaking uh, amongst their own groups. I mean, I've been in touch with the Hindu Council of Great Britain, very clear that they want a ban on conversion therapy and 
talking with senior Buddhists and Sikhs and Muslims and Jews, mm. you know, across the board. Now, the trouble is, perhaps, uh, for instance, in the uh, in Islam, in the Muslim faith, they've yet to really admit that there are actually LGBT Muslims. There, you know, that um, they're a step back. The Jewish community um, are split very much like the uh, the Christian community are on matters to do with LGBT acceptance. However, there is a growing concern about what has been happening, particularly in Orthodox Jewish circles. I spoke at a big event um, organised by Keshet UK, the Jewish LGBT charity, where we started talking about um, how Jewish um, LGBT people have gone through quite horrific forms of conversion therapy and why a stance needed to be taken on this. So the trouble is that a lot of it is very underground. You know, a lot of particularly uh, in Sikh and uh, Muslim communities, people are sent, quote, back home. So o overseas uh, to be put through some pretty horrific forms of abuse. Um, and this needs to be understood so that we can put laws in place that protect people from from being sent overseas as well. So, um, yeah, no, right across the board. And I haven't mentioned the Catholic uh, Church yet. I mean, uh, this is an issue, live issue, uh, sadly, amongst many Catholic uh, communities, too. Um, so working there. Um, and that's, as you've mentioned, why I, I also talked about this with His Holiness a couple of years ago. I'm really interested in your foundation, um, the Ozan Foundation, which you set up with the aim of, as you've mentioned, working with religious organisations around the world to eliminate discrimination based on sexuality or gender. What successes are you having and what hopes do you have for future projects? Well, I think our greatest success to date, really, um, perhaps the most visible ones, because so much of our work is behind the scenes. Uh, it's not something I can talk about publicly because it's about building relationships with senior leaders. Mm -hmm. But the most visible thing was the launch of the Global Interfaith Commission on L LGBT Lives that we launched last December. And this sought to bring together senior affirming leaders from across the faith groups from across the world uh, and uh, who all signed a declaration that admitted that, uh, well, apologised for the way that religious teaching has been used to um, cause such harm to LGBT people and called for a global ban on conversion therapy as well as calling on nations to stop criminalising LGBT people and to stop violence against them. It was a very powerful declaration. People can view it at www.globalinterfaith.lgbt and indeed if they agree with the declaration they too can uh, sign. But we had nearly 400 really senior faith leaders, including Archbishop Desmond Tutu, other archbishops, chief rabbis, members from the Sikh, uh, Buddhist, Hindu, and even the Islamic communities uh, signing this statement. And for me, that was about enabling them to know that the, often what, who they feel lone voices in their own community, that they are part of a global growing voice now of faith leaders who want to see change, who want to embrace and celebrate LGBT people and frankly want to ensure that there are safeguards in place to ensure that their lives aren't traumatised. So there's much more we should be doing and can be doing. Um, my focus at the moment is obviously working for a global ban on conversion therapy and to do that we need to bring global faith leaders on board and that's where a lot of my time is focused at present. 
Wonderful. All sounds like such positive work. You're certainly a powerful force in campaigning for equality and for an end to discrimination in LGBTQ plus communities. Can you recall any particular turning point which galvanised you to act? Well, I suppose my own personal experience, I um, I have quite an unusual story, which if people are interested, they can read in my book, Just Love, unashamed plug there. And if you go to my website, janeozan.com or ozan.foundation, you can find a link as to how to buy it cheaper than on Amazon. Um, oh, but, no. um, but I've had quite an unusual life, um, one uh, where my faith, I think, is obviously been very evident to the fore. I was on something called the Archbishop's Council, which was a voluntary position. I've, you know, worked with extraordinary people in uh, like Canon Andrew White in the Middle East and Caroline Cox in, you know, uh, war-torn places like East Timor in Armenia and, and really lived by faith and yet had this terrible secret that I was, knew that I was attracted to women. And that took me to a very dark place in hospital twice. When I finally felt I had no choice but to come out because it was either that or, 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 or frankly taking my life uh, because of the pain and trauma I was going through. I, I came out and it was very costly for me, but I knew deep down that at some stage I would need to re-engage with this really what had become toxic debate because I knew the people so well on both sides of it and I had lived it. I had an unusual position, if you like, because I had relationships with senior religious leaders, archbishops, bishops, and and evangelicals. I came from the evangelical fold, and I know many of the senior evangelical leaders today. So in a position to talk with them, obviously many of them feel I've uh, gone beyond the pale or <laughs> don't see me as Christian, but my faith is still the same. I'm still the same. It just happened to be at peace with who I am and um, so in that sense it was a calling Um, but I knew for me and and I'm conscious of people listening you know sometimes when we've gone through such terrible trauma we need time out so I needed five six years out I I needed to rebuild my relationship with religious organizations I think my religious relationship with God was, was quite strong through all of this but how I related to the church was something different and even now I sometimes find it quite hard to be part of the Church of England I find it so homophobic and transphobic in places but yeah I sense it, it was a sense of calling really um, and uh, I suppose the main I mean I just knew that at the right time I'd get engaged and in 2014 Vicky Beeching came out some may remember she's a very well-known uh, singer evangelical singer who came out and that caused quite a shock waves and I sensed things were changing I was invited to head up something called accepting evangelicals and I knew that that this was a time to step forward and get engaged so that that's I suppose the main turning point amazing and thank goodness you did because yeah you're doing a wonderful job thank you and how did it come about that you met the pope and what did you say to him (laughs) Yeah, no, well, you see, God moves in mysterious ways. Who would have thought? thought? I mean, it's an extraordinary story, which I can't tell really all of it about. But I, I, because of my work and through lots of unusual connections, I uh, was introduced to a gentleman who is a very good friend of uh, His Holiness and who wanted me to meet him and talk to him briefly. Um, 
uh, about uh, the impact of conversion therapy. And um, in fact, the first time I was invited to go to mass with uh, His Holiness, I, I, I didn't know that's what I was being invited to do. And I'd actually turned it down, believe it or not. So, oh, nice. um, and I'd gone to Rome to, to meet this gentleman who I understood was a close contact of His Holiness. And, um, and beforehand, I'd met with the ambassador to the Holy See, the UK ambassador who was giving me a bit of a briefing on um, the Vatican and, and Catholic politics and stuff. And she mentioned uh, a church, Santa Marta. And I stopped her. I said, oh, do you mind explaining to me what Santa Marta is? Because um, and she looked at me and she said, why? And I said, well, you know, I just she said, don't tell me you've been invited to mass there. And I said, well, yes, I have. But I didn't know what it was. So I, I said I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a Catholic and I didn't think it was for me. And she looked at me wide eyed and said, Jane, you may want to revisit that thought, um, uh, which I promptly did. And luckily, mm. uh, a week later, I found myself uh, at mass, morning mass with his holiness in his private chapel. And it was wow. after that I was able to meet him and I, I was told, look, Jane, you know, you'll be one of a small set of guests, but you'll only have you know, 30, 45 seconds at most, really, to to say what you want to say. There may be a little exchange, but this is not, you know, a, a full five minute, 10 minute meeting. Um, but the fact that I was there, you know, spoke volumes. And so I was told, make those 45 seconds count. And it's an interesting thing, isn't it? And I challenge anybody listening. If you had 30 seconds, 45 seconds, a handshake with someone you think can change the world, you know, for me, it was his holiness. It could be a president. It could be a leader of business. What would you say? How do you grab their attention in a way that you hope they will remember? Because think of all the thousands of people they have to meet, you know, in a month or whatever. What will cut through? And so, yeah, the night before I was I was praying about it, really, and I really didn't, I just, pressure is quite hard, isn't it? How do you speak what yeah. thousands of LGBT people would like to say? And I decided just to, to, to appeal to his humanity. So I approached uh, him uh, saying, Your Holiness, I'm Jane. I'm a, a gay evangelical Anglican from England and his eyebrows shut up and I thought yeah is it the gay bit the evangelical bit or the Anglican bit probably all yeah, three part? And the, you can see him thinking what's she going to say and he took my hand and I said look I grew up being told I would never be a mother a grandmother or a wife and that nearly killed me and it's true you know it was mm -hmm. the lack of relationship the lack of intimacy you know, it's not about sex it's about ha building a unit where we all most of us not everyone longs to, to I would have loved to have had children and I said and this is my story I gave them my book and I said and this research shows that I am not alone and that there are many others who go through hell because of this and he grabbed both my hands it's quite an intimate picture there are various pictures taken yeah, but you can see he he's looking down yeah. and he basically says please pray for me and it actually the picture's slightly embarrassing because it looks like i'm receiving him doesn't it <laughs> he's got his head bowed and i'm and i'm just i just it was a very intimate moment it was very genuine and he said you know please pray for me and i promise to pray for you and i said i will your holiness and actually my friend who was introducing us had, had sort of interrupted to sort of check the, the translation because you know obviously English isn't his first and he was very happy to talk 
but it's the genuineness that comes across mm. and the pastoral heart he could have brushed me off he could have been very cold he could have dropped my hand he could have just you know but those photos he knew and i knew would would, would travel and yeah. of course it's the photo that says a thousand words and um i was then invited two days later that's not what uh, to come back to the vatican to hear him address as it happened a group of lawyers in which he, he was talking about international law and protecting people. Um, but he inserted a paragraph about the need to uh, protect LGBT people. So, and it was a privilege. They were sitting on the second row, you know, again. So a sign, if you like, that my, my presence was welcome and that Definitely. I've been heard. And we've got a hell of a long way to go, of course, excuse my French. But, you know, we have got a long way to travel. But a journey is made up of thousands of steps in the right direction. And these were two very significant steps and um, ones that I'm building on, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Wow, that's a lovely way to, to end this conversation. I mean, yeah, we needed something uplifting with this topic, um, which is really, really dense and complicated and really it is harrowing. So mm an uplifting way to finish but Shane what a life and thank you so much interesting conversations and I'm I'm so fascinated by everything that you get up to so I'll be following you deeply (laughs) no I'm really grateful for the chance to to speak Anya and if anything I've said has caused trauma to anybody listening if you go to the bandconversiontherapy.com website there is a support page there of places you can go to get support and help if this has touched on anything uh, within your own journey yeah it's a really important point thanks so much Jane thank Thank you. you very much